Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Bibles and open up to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. And we are going to continue our uh, series through the book of Galatians. And we are, we're right at the halfway point through this series. And so if you haven't already joined the uh, Galatians challenge, I encourage you to do that. And that simple challenge is, read through the book of Galatians in one week. If you really want to challenge yourself, do it in one sitting. Alright? But, at minimum, do it at least one time. All the way through, one week. You can start on Monday, read one chapter, go all the way to Saturday, and then we're back in Galatians on Sunday. And you're going to get a greater scope of what's going on here and what's happening. Now, we've covered a lot of ground, and so I even encourage those of you who have been with us or you've been following online through this series, go back and reread chapters 1 through 3. I'll really hone into to get a, a greater understanding. When we, take, when we take just a piece of Scripture, church, it in no way encompasses the whole. It's a, it's a piece of the whole, and so it's important that we uh, also take into account the rest of what's being said so that we understand the most and truly interpret, do our interpretive work well as we continue to navigate this chapter by chapter. Now, we've been using this method, and here's your weekly quiz, okay? So I'm going to count to three, and I want you just to speak out these three words that start with these three letters. And as I usually say, if you're joining us for the first time, you're off the hook today. But after today, you're no longer off the hook. So whether you're watching on video or you're here with us, I'm going to count to three. I want you to speak it out with power and boldness, okay? One, two, three. Observation, interpretation, application. This is the systematic process I'm encouraging you to walk through as the church as we go chapter by chapter through Galatians. But the cool thing about this is you can do it in any of the books of the Bible that you want. It's the same process and it's valuable regardless regardless of where you're at in the biblical text. Now, today... We're going to even focus a little further on the interpretive element. We've been doing that kind of consistently. And the reason for that is the observation section of our Bible study method is, uh, from my view, one of the simpler tasks because it can be as short or as expansive as you would like it to be depending on the amount of time you want to study. And all you're doing in observation is I'm just observing I'm, I'm literally looking at the text of Scripture and writing down what I see. And the only thing that hinders us from observation is whether or not we actually open our eyes to see it, okay? 
where we tend to encounter some more murky waters when we jump into interpretation and then long-term application. So, observation, I encourage you an exercise this week. Read through just even Galatians 4 and practice observation. Circle some words you don't know the meaning to. Mark some grammatical structure, whether that be, I'm going to identify the sentence or the subject of a sentence and then the action. I'm, I'm going to do some basic processes. If you aren't sure how to do that, um, maybe, maybe find someone who is an English grammar teacher and phone them up and say, what does this look like? You'll make their day, okay? And it might even be a cool opportunity to engage in a gospel conversation that way. You never know. So, Employ some observation techniques, but then uh, as we jump into interpretation, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk you through the process of identifying even some more specific theological instances in Scripture that require much more in-depth study and should perk our interest in the amount of time we spend in them even more than maybe we usually do. Okay, so what I want to do is I'm gonna read in. Uh, uh, Galatians 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to pray, and then we're just going to start kind of walking through this bit by bit, piece by piece, and trusting the Lord to draw out uh, the text for us. <clears throat> it says in verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Father, as we evaluate this today, may you help us to grasp and understand the depth of your word, the application to our own lives here as the church. And may we not simply be hearers of the word, but may we be doers, looking at ourselves fully in the mirror and not walking away and forget what we look like. To you be all glory, honor, and praise for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's look again at verse 1. And one of the first things, and by, by now, I want you guys to be recognizing some of this, even on your own. This sentence, I mean that the heir, what is this statement? What, what should this cause us to do? Speak it out. What should this cause us to do? Where he says, I mean... What, what should we do here? Go back, okay? We should stop. Everyone say stop. 
You're going to hear me say this a lot. You, you've already heard me say this a lot, but you're going to hear me say this a lot as we navigate this process. When we encounter something that causes us to transition or is a clarifying statement, that is, this is clearly tied to something else he said. No one enters a conversation and goes, well, I mean, that wouldn't make any sense, would it? When I'm clarifying something for you, it means I've said something before this that you may not understand where I'm coming from. And so this is where it's crucial that we go back, that we read further back behind. And this goes even in back to what we talked about last week where Paul is clarifying in this distinction between a covenant that was ratified or established by God, and the law which was put in place as a guardian or as a chaperone, as it were, until the time that Christ came, that we could be justified, that we could be saved by faith. And ultimately, in verse 29, is really where we can get the clarifying statement that he's trying to follow up with here. He says, and if you are Christ, this is in chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, everyone say heirs, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, you see how this flows, okay? We would totally miss that if we just started in chapter 4, verse 1. Little side note here. The original biblical text did not have these fancy numbers in them. It did not have chapter or verse numbers. Those are added later. And so if we purely depend upon the numbers in our text to divide up the text and how we read it, we're liable to miss something. And so so I will even, to do my observation, sometimes I will go online and I will... Copy and paste the words over onto a separate document, and I'll just get rid of all of the numbers. I'll just delete all the numbers, so all I have is the text. And when I do that, I have just put it in letter format, which is exactly what the book of Galatians is. And then I read it, and you start to see and realize, wow, okay, maybe this is, shouldn't be broken apart here, because it's easier to understand. This is one of those instances If we start in chapter 4, we're going to be really confused because we have no idea what he's saying to preface this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, practically speaking, this is just a really good visual example that he's trying to employ in order to get us to understand the concept of an heir. An heir. Now, if we don't know what an heir is, that would be a word that we would circle and we would go do some study on. And we would find out that an heir is really the designated person to inherit everything promised by their father. Everything promised by their family before them. If I'm the heir to what my family has established, I am in place to inherit all of the benefit or in some people's shoes, all of the not good stuff that comes from whatever is established by the person before me. And he's using this as an example. As long as an individual is a child, they're no different from a slave. This is a really interesting correlation. 
though he is the owner, he here being the child, okay, though this child is technically the owner of everything because he is the heir, in the time of his childhood, he's no different than the slave. But he is under guardians and managers until... So this is something we can recognize, church, in our interpretation. This is not a permanent status. The status of heir is not a permanent placement. Eventually, heir signifies that something's coming. Otherwise, I'm no different than a slave. I'm just here. I'm a part of what's going on. I'm working. I'm moving towards this. But there's nothing in the future. There's a distinction here between a slave and an heir. Just because... Now, this is, this is an interesting correlation that we can even see here because it doesn't say that the heir is a slave. It just says that there's not much difference here. And the clarification we can make from this is that just because we have promised authority, it does not mean that we're in the driver's seat, right? Just because my dad happens to be in this position, it doesn't mean that somehow now I'm in charge. And I'm telling you, church, this is one of those correlations we can see in Scripture and we can go, huh, how many times do we take more more into our authority because we say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I have this promised inheritance in eternity. And then we take all kinds of license with that. It is nowhere in Scripture that we're called really to be humble servants, right? And in the midst of all that's going on, how much more are we to be servants, even though we have this promise that's yet to come, this promise through Christ? Just because we have promised authority doesn't mean we're in the driver's seat. Now, he goes further into this in verse 3, in the same way, so... Referring back to this section, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Some of your translations might say elementary spirits of the world. Now, this is interesting terminology and phrases, and to give us some more clarity on this, we're going to employ the interpretive dynamic of cross-referencing And I'm going to take you to Ephesians chapter 2, which is just a few pages forward from Galatians 4. Ephesians follows right after Galatians. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we commonly quote just a couple of verses out of chapter 2. But this passage is rich with theological importance. And in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, it says, And you, everyone say you, You were dead. Everyone say, were. This is really important. Now, I'm going to play your English teacher for a minute. Which tense is this? Past tense. Okay, everyone say past. Past. Paul's writing in Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, and he's saying, you were once, you in the past, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all, everyone say all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body 
and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, it would be really sad if this passage ended there. Because it just identifies the ugly past that all of us have. But verse 4 is one of the great buts of Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, everyone say dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if we just read Galatians and stopped there and didn't take into account this phraseology of we were enslaved. What, what do you mean we were enslaved? What do you mean that we're enslaved to these elementary, these not specific, not important principles or spirits within the world? Well, according to Ephesians 2, every single one of us not only was enslaved to these, but were dead as a result of being enslaved to these. And an, an interpretive question that we might ask as we walk through this is, what are some examples of me living as someone who's enslaved or who is dead in my trespasses and sins? What does it look like? And this is a weird statement, but what does it look like to live as a dead person? What does that look like practically for me? Because if we correlate what is said in Ephesians of you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but now, but God being rich in mercy, has made us alive. He's made us alive together in Christ. This is the very truth, the very gospel that the people of, in Galatia were wrestling with. They were turning back. They were going back to an old way of thinking. And we saw that in Galatians 1, where he says, I'm, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him. Who? You're deserting God. The same God, according to Ephesians chapter 2, who is rich in mercy and made us alive. The only way that we're going to be made alive. And yet, we remain so often enslaved, not identifying that there is freedom in Christ. Now, if we go on from here in verse 4 of Galatians 4, this is another great transitional but in the English text of Scripture. But when the fullness of time had come, this contrasting, being a child, being enslaved, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption 
as sons. Now, this paints a picture for you. It paints a picture, and I love doing, this is an observation technique, church. You can get this visual in your mind that the writers of Scripture portray. Here we have this picture of a child who is enslaved. Enslaved to sin, enslaved to the world, and yet has the potential to be the heir the co-heir with Christ. And this picture that's painted is, here's what the past has looked like. Here's what was, but when the fullness of time had come, that is, when God said, this is the time for my Son to come and bring about that which everything before Christ has been leading up to. Literally, Jesus is the capstone in the Gospel story. It's the climax of the whole thing where we've been building to this, where Adam and Eve ruined it and the plot thickened and we went, oh, why? And then we see the nation of Israel established and Abraham is promised that through him would be a blessing to all people and we get kind of excited. Oh man, a blessing. This is really refreshing after seeing what happened in the first earlier parts of Genesis. And then... You see all of this other unfold. You see the nation of Israel established and they see the promises of God fleshed out right before them and yet they choose to walk in a direction contrary to that. And the law is established and yet they can't follow the law. They make the law kind of what it, what it wants to be for them. And there's all of this struggle and tension and we find ourselves frustrated reading that. Come on, people. And then there's a gap from Malachi to Matthew. And in Matthew, all of a sudden, we have the story, the beginning of the Gospels. And a child is born. And in the narrative of Scripture, it should cause us to go, what is the significance here? You see, church, when we are so prone to walk through these stories that we've heard, maybe from childhood or for years and years, we lose the whole narrative. And when we get to letters like Galatians, it's emphasizing all of this other stuff that's happened prior to this and the significance of that. And the law was established, we saw this in chapter 3, as a guardian leading ultimately to point people, to make them realize they needed so much more than themselves. And that it could only be by faith that they are saved. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Now understand this, this woman would have been under the law that was established through Moses. Therefore, Jesus Himself, the very Son of God, was born under the law. The same law, the same requirements that were given to the people of Israel. But He was born for a different purpose. To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is really significant. And is something we often skip over as we read the text of Scripture. This whole concept of adoption. 
adoption as sons. Now, we're going to focus a lot more time on this, this, uh, this concept of adoption. But here's really the application that we can pull even from these first few verses, church. That which is former does not have to be final. That which is in the past does not have to be that which is always the case. You were once enslaved. Past tense. But if you're listening to this, the only way that that becomes past tense is through Christ. It's the only way that becomes past tense. But that which is in the past, that which is former does not have to be what is final. Do we believe that? Now, ultimately, with this concept of adoption, I call these theological rabbit trails. Okay? Have you ever been with someone and they're kind of carrying on a conversation and then out of the blue they kind of... Okay, we've experienced this before. I'm, I'm, I, see, this, alright, sidebar here for a minute. This is one of the ways that guys and gals are a little bit different. Okay? I tend to refer to it when I'm talking with people as, as fi- a file cabinet. I, I function like a file cabinet. I open the drawer, I pull out whatever file I need to think about, and I work on it for a little bit, and when I'm done, I put the file away. And my wife, is kind of like a plate of spaghetti. Everything's connected. And I'm like, man, I need my file cabinet, okay? Well, a theological rabbit trail, guys, takes you out of the file cabinet, all right? And goes a different direction. But it's a really beneficial thing. It's a really valuable thing for us to do. And adoption is one of those theological elements within the text that when we see it, we should go, what does it mean to be adopted as a son or a daughter in Christ? What does this look like? Is this really significant? Because if we don't get this, this is obviously a really important thing because it's the capstone so that we might receive adoption as sons. He goes on in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His, of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's the logical deductive process you go through in this verse. The only way I am an heir is through God. And there's only one way that God has made it, made it possible for you to be an heir. And that's to be one of his sons, one of his children. Now earlier in Galatians, we saw that it was all who believed who are called children of God. In other words, this whole theme of adoption is throughout the book of Galatians. But right here he uses the word for adoption. And in fact, if you were to go to your concordance or your Bible software and look up this word for adoption, you're going to find it's used five times. Five times in the New Testament. Paul uses it five times. He uses it here in Galatians 4. He uses it two times in Romans 8. 
which we read earlier. He uses it once in Romans 9, and he uses it once in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, five times in the scope of the whole of Scripture may not feel significant. This is significant, church. He's emphasizing this in his letters for a reason. This idea of adoption. Now, the reason I bring up these theological rabbit trails is because you can find entire books and libraries written on this one subject that is brought up five times in Scripture. There are people who have devoted their lives to studying this one theological rabbit trail. And so when we encounter these, it can be valuable to not only stop and think about it, but to go and find someone who's really done a lot of work and research and read some of their stuff. Some of it is way up here, okay? I read some of it, and I have to stop and I have to think through about a paragraph in 30 minutes. Because it's just a lot to digest. I had the privilege of studying under the guy who's kind of known for focusing on adoption. And so if you're ever interested in some of his writings, I can recommend a couple books to you. I have them in my library. I can show them to you. Phenomenal, phenomenal work. Not what I'm focusing all of my life and time on, but he has done tons on that. And he was my Greek professor in school. So cool to learn under him for that purpose. But in Romans 8, we even saw this importance that God has not only adopted us, but did you notice when we read through that earlier that there was a groaning that was taking place? An anticipation for an, to be adopted as sons. And so the, the magical element here that I want you to hold on to when it comes to adoption is there is an already but not yet truth to the theology of being adopted as one of God's children. And that is that in Christ, we are adopted children. The adoption is finalized. It's complete. But it is not fully done until we are with our Father. And so we groan, we wait, we long for that adoption to be completely finalized and we're at home. That's the already but not yet. Our confidence should not be hindered, but our eyes should forever be fixated on what is not yet. And through that adoption, we become heirs. Heirs with Christ. So you are no longer a slave but a son. If a son, then an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. This is a word repeated, church, to those that by nature are not gods, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be, be once more? We do that, don't we? How? How can we turn back to these things? You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I was reading an illustration of this earlier in the week. It was an illustration of this family 
that went and adopted these children in another country. And the adoption was finalized. It was done. And they picked these kids up from the orphanage. And these kids are clinging to that orphanage. Why? It's all they'd ever known. Is the security that they had put their, their, their hope and their security was there. They had no idea what was waiting for them. And so they clung. They clung to that orphanage. Having no idea the love of the parents that were there saying, Come home, come home. Church, we do this. this. I, I sat there in my office and I just thought, This is exactly what I do. Where I look around me at everything that's going on. And I cling, I cling, I, I cling to the world because this is what, this is all I know. And I can read about eternity and I can anticipate, but I don't know. And so I, I, my tendency, my draw is I come back to that which I know. And I forget that in Christ, I'm a child of the King. And what is promised beyond here is so much greater than anything I could cling to right here and right now. And what's even greater than that is that that which is final in Christ is forever. And so when I've been sealed, and Romans 8 identifies that that sealing is the promised spirit that seals us, that's the guarantee. When I am sealed, no one can take away that sealing. No one can remove that from me. It is final. Now, the true question becomes whether or not we're actually sealed. Have the adoption papers been finalized? The only way that happens, church, is by faith in Christ. And if you have faith in Christ, if you believe in the name of Jesus to be saved, and you believe there's no other way to salvation but through Him, you believe that? You are sealed. You are sealed in the Spirit. And if there is any doubt in your mind as to whether that sealing is complete, you come talk to myself. You come talk to one of our staff, one of our elders, because my longing, my desire, church, is that you would have confidence that in Christ and in Christ alone you are a child of the King. And that which is yet to come is so much greater than that which is right now, church. And especially in a season like this, we have got to fix our eyes fully upon the One who has adopted us and who we are heirs to the Kingdom. And I'm convinced when we have our eyes fixed there, we are a lot more productive for the Gospel in the time that we have left here. Because anything that happens here cannot unseal my adoption as a child of the King. And Paul was concerned about this. Referring back to days, months, seasons, and years, you focus so much on the law and these these things that don't matter. He's concerned for the people in Galatia that he may have labored over them in vain. Church, I don't want these teachings... And the Word of God to be a labor in vain. So may the Spirit empower you 
To live as someone who is no longer enslaved, who is free in Christ. And not only free, but adopted as part of God's family in Christ. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to sing one last song together. Let's pray. Father, may may you remind us that we are in Christ adopted as sons and daughters. God, may the person here today who just isn't sure of that adoption recognize that the Father has already paid for that adoption when He sent His Son and rose His Son from the grave to show that He and He alone had power over death, over that which enslaves us. God, remind us today of the good news that there is hope, that what is in the past is not final. And that what is final in Christ is forever. Build us as your church, I pray in Jesus' name.